swings and drives one. Deep right field. Broad looks up. It's out of here. Curry for three. Got it. Struck him out. Now back up to the makes a diving catch in the end zone. Touchdown Giants. You're listening to Just Steven Sports with Steven Cusimano and Justin Lopiccolo. Welcome back to Just Steven Sports. Steven Cusimano here alongside Justin Lopiccolo where we have an absolutely jam-packed show. We're going to talk baseball, football, basketball, you name it. We got it right here on Just Steven Sports. Bryce Harper called baseball a tired sport. Do we agree or disagree with him? Also, the Diamondbacks have the number one offense in all of baseball right now in spring training. Will that translate to regular season success? And also, was Adam LaRoche looking for a reason to retire? And are the Charlotte Hornets, yes, those Charlotte Hornets, going to give the Cleveland Cavaliers a run for their money in the Eastern Conference? That is all yet to come. But first, we're going to start with the NFL Draft. On our last show, we previewed picks 1 through 10 in the NFL Draft. Now we're going to preview picks 11 through 20. So without further ado, Justin, who is picking at 11? So at number 11, again, all the analysts disagree for the Chicago Bears. One of them has Shaq Lawson from Clemson going. Carson Wentz somehow slips down all the way to 11. Uh, Ashawn Robinson and Ronnie Stanley. Now, uh, what do you think about, specifically, what do you think about Carson Wentz replacing Jay Cutler in Chicago? Well, there's a lot of scouts and experts that think that Carson Wentz would be a perfect fit for the Chicago Bears. And I agree because they have a lot of young talent on the offensive side of the ball. They have... The great uh, running back who just came up last year in Jeremy Langford and also Kevin White, who is finally going to have his first full season and play his first game in the NFL. There's a lot of people last year in the draft who thought that he would be better than Amari Cooper, who, as we know, had a tremendous rookie season. So if Carson Wentz is there, the Bears are certainly taking him because Jay Cutler, yes, he's on a big deal, but he's certainly not the answer for the Bears. And Carson Wentz is way too good to pass up on. But the guy who I think they are going to take, because I don't think Carson Wentz is going to last that long with all the teams that need quarterbacks, is either Sean Robinson or Sheldon Rankins because the Bears had one of the worst front sevens in the NFL last year, and the only way to shore that up is by putting a really big body right in the middle of it, and that would be Sean Robinson from Alabama or Sheldon Rankins from Louisville. And I think Sheldon Rankins would be a perfect fit. I mean, he's a huge guy, and he's also really strong and athletic. So I would like to see the Bears take Carson Wentz if he's there. It's a great fit with a very young offense, but if he's not there, which is very likely, I do see them taking Sheldon Rankins. But uh, just a few days ago, the New Orleans Saints shored up their front seven, which was also one of the worst in the NFL, by signing James Laurinaitis, who, as we know, is a pro bowler from Los Angeles. So three of the experts out of the four also have the Saints shoring up their defense. You had Sheldon Rankins, Jerron Reed, another defensive tackle from Alabama, and also Kevin Dodd, the defensive end from Clemson, if he slips down that far. The fourth expert had them taking a wide receiver out of Mississippi, Laquan Treadwell, as they released Marcus Colston last week. So... Um, like I mentioned about the Saints, one of the worst front sevens in all of the league last year. So um, in my opinion, they're going to take either Sean Robinson or Shelton Rankins, whichever one of them is still on the board, if they're both still on the board. But as far as your opinion, Justin, who do you think that the Saints need to pick to show up their defense or even give Drew Brees a few more weapons on offense? Well, I think if somehow Kevin Dodd you know, rolls down that far, you got to take him because the offense is not the problem for the Saints. I mean, I saw Drew Brees throw six or seven touchdowns against the Giants last year, albeit it was a bad secondary. But, I mean, the offense can work. They can score four touchdowns a game passing and two running. I mean, it can happen. But if they can focus on their defense and not give up 60 points to the point where you have to win, like, on a punt return or something, it's better for them to sure up the line. Even though they got James Laurinaitis, that's not enough. If he's on one side, they can just run to the other. I mean, it happens all the time. You see these 
a great D lineman with so much potential, and then it seems like they do nothing, but it's not that. It's just when they run the ball, they run the opposite direction. When the quarterback rolls out, he rolls out the opposite direction. because they. And then plus he's getting double teamed. So if you can get two guys with a little bit of talent on the team, like Kevin Dodd and James Laurinaitis, or even Sheldon Rankins if he's still there, that would be a great fit for the Saints to shore up that defense and then maybe work on the secondary in later rounds. And then at 13, the Dolphins who have, tried, have made a few moves this offseason, you know, to keep their defense together, but it hasn't always worked with Brent Grimes leaving and Oliver Vernon leaving. All the analysts seem to disagree yet again. Uh, one has Kevin Dodd, one has Shaq Lawson, Vernon Hargreaves, and Corey Coleman, wide receiver out of Baylor. So do you think they're going to stick with defense or try to give Ryan Tannehill some more weapons? Well, for the Dolphins, I think that their defense has a lot of potential. I think that they know that. The upper management knows that. So while they can use some improvements at defense, I don't think it's a huge problem, but I think the real problem is on the offensive side of the ball. You just lost your workhorse running back in Lamar Miller. Ryan Tannehill, other than Jarvis Landry, doesn't have a lot to work with, and Jarvis Landry proved last year that he's a great wide receiver. He is a perennial pro bowler from here on out, and he needs somebody to play alongside him, and I think that the answer here for the Miami Dolphins is going to be another wide receiver, whether or not that's Laquan Treadwell from Mississippi or Corey Coleman from Baylor, I think the Dolphins are going to take whichever one of those two guys is still on the board. And based on what the experts are saying, Corey Coleman is going to be the guy for the Miami Dolphins. But you look at pick number 14 and you have the Oakland Raiders who are certainly picking a lot lower down than they're used to as they had a bit of a surprising season last year. And there's a lot of people now who think that the AFC West is wide open for the Raiders to win with the departure of Peyton Manning. And then you have a lot of the Kansas City players leaving. So there's a lot of people that think that the Oakland Raiders with their young offense can contend in the AFC this year, and they've already made some moves this free agency to fix up their defense. They did lose Justin Tuck, but they signed Bruce Irvin out of Seattle. And at 14, the experts have the Oakland Raiders taking either a defensive tackle like Sheldon Rankins, an offensive tackle in Jack Conklin, or Eli Apple, the cornerback out of Ohio State. Yeah, and there's one major problem with the Raiders right now. is NFL fans, at this point, after Charles Woodson has left, cannot name anyone in their secondary. I mean, right now it's kind of very bare. And not only because he has the coolest name in the draft, but I watched a lot of Ohio State last year, and I thought he sh- they should have been uh, in the you know the final four teams because they were by far better than Michigan State, but that's a different story for a different day. But I saw Eli Apple play, and he really was a great corner for Ohio State who had a great defense, a great offense. So I think if they can take a guy like him and kind of start rebuilding around that empty secondary and they and then now they've shored up the linebacker position a little bit and their offense isn't too bad. So they need to just start rebuilding and that 14th pick might turn into, you know, a 20 or 23rd pick if they can improve. Now, what are the experts saying about the LA Rams at 15? Reggie Ragland, Corey Coleman, Treadwell again, and Jared Goff, who I guess they see slipping down that far. Well, it's really hard to think about the last time the LA Rams had a good quarterback. Um, I guess the last time they had a good season out of a quarterback was Sam Bradford's rookie season. But other than that, it's hard to remember the last good LA Rams quarterback. So I certainly think that if somehow Jared Goff or Carson Wentz are still there, then quarterback is definitely their biggest need for the Rams. Nick Foles is certainly not the answer. So if one of those two guys is there, they will definitely take them. And I would also peg the Rams as one of those teams that might certainly trade up to a pick earlier in the top 10 picks to draft a quarterback because they need one that bad. They just moved to L.A., a huge market, and they want to sell jerseys. They want a player who is very marketable. And a guy like Jared Goff, who played college football at California, now where the L.A. Rams are going to play, would be a perfect fit for the Rams as they desperately need a quarterback I feel if they drafted somebody like Paxton Lynch at 15, that would be a bit of a reach. But one thing that I don't think the Rams are afraid to reach for in the first round is a wide receiver because there is a lot of first-round wide receiver talent in the draft this year. And reaching for a guy like Josh Doxson or 
Will Fuller would be a pretty good move, I think, for the uh, LA Rams if Laquan Treadwell or Corey Coleman are not still there because a lot like quarterback, it's hard for me to remember the last time the LA Rams had a good wide receiver there. I think if there's a really good defensive player on the board, the Rams are not going to want to pass up on that. They had a good defense last year. Um, I definitely don't think defense is their number one need, but anytime you lose a pro bowler like James Warrenitis, you want to fill that hole, and I think that Reggie Ragland out of Alabama, the linebacker, could perfectly slide into James Warrenitis' role, so... That's another name that I think they might be able to take, but I would definitely keep an eye on the Rams as a team that might trade up and draft a guy like Jared Goff specifically. Another team like the Rams that needs a lot of help and has a lot of holes to fill is the Detroit Lions. They will be picking at number 16 this year, and you look at them, they have taken a few huge steps back in the past couple of years. Matthew Stafford's gameplay has regressed by a drastic amount. The best player on their team, Calvin Johnson, leaves the field, and all of a sudden, you really don't have a threat on either the offensive or the defensive side of the ball. So the Lions look to be in a complete rebuilding mode right now. For them, it might come down to who is the best player on the board. And at this point, it might be an offensive tackle like Jack Conklin or Taylor Decker. But with that being said, they are still trying to recover from the loss of Indomitian Sue with a weak defensive line. Yeah, and I think if if for some reason he slips down that far, of course you have to take him. But we're going to assume that he doesn't go down that far because the talent that he has, he should go higher than that with teams with a lot of teams needing a defensive end. Uh, offensive tackle is probably a good place to start with a team like the Lions, only because they have holes on the offensive and defensive side. So if you can sure up that offensive line and give Matthew Stafford time to throw to maybe wide receivers that aren't as good now that Calvin Johnson's gone. But you know, if you give any quarterback time, we've talked about it before, you give any quarterback some time, they can be an elite passer. So, I mean... A guy with potential like Matthew Stafford could use somebody on the offensive line to give him like three or four more seconds. Yeah, the Lions are a team with so many problems that I think it's just going to come down to who is the most talented player on their board. And whether that's an offensive tackle or a linebacker, I think they're going to take it regardless. And with that being said, uh, anytime you lose a guy like Calvin Johnson, who is obviously a once-in-a-generation talent and a huge part of your offensive game plan, you're going to want to replace that immediately because it leaves a big hole in your game plan. And let's say a guy like Laquan Treadwell is there. I think that the Lions will definitely pull the trigger because that's a huge need for them right now. And then at number 17, we have the Atlanta Falcons. And three out of the four uh, analysts on here picked Reggie Ragland to go there, uh, inside linebacker out of Alabama. And then one says Darren Lee, an outside linebacker out of uh, Ohio State. And I, I saw Darren Lee play a lot last year, and uh, he performed well. I mean, I, I was really high on Ohio State. And the way I saw him and the whole team play was pretty impressive on offense and defense. Uh, but Reggie Ragland is a really, really good linebacker out of Alabama. I mean, it seems like their whole defense is just from rushing the quarterback to Covering the pass is just incredible. So Reggie Ragland might be a good choice here, but what do you think, Steven? Well, the Falcons obviously have major problems on defense, and as you look at that expert pick there, it looks like linebacker is their biggest problem. So definitely, if Darren Lee or Reggie Ragland are on the board, whichever one's still there is probably who the Falcons are going to take. There's a reason why four experts are all picking them to take a linebacker. It's because they really need help there, and even if both of these guys are off the board, you might even see them reach for someone like Leonard Floyd out of Georgia. They really need a linebacker, and I think whichever one's available, whether it's Darren Lee or Reggie Ragland, I think that regardless, the Falcons need a linebacker. But at number 18, the Colts are an interesting team who we talked about earlier in the week that do need a lot of help. They're, for the first time in quite a few years, probably 10 or 15 years, not the favorites to win the AFC South, so... They do need help on the offensive line. You had a few of these experts saying that they might take Jack Conklin out of Michigan State or Taylor Decker out of Ohio State, but they definitely need help on defense too. But Justin, it really comes down to who do they need to help more, Andrew Luck on that offensive side of the ball or their defense as a whole unit? 
Well, I'd really love to see them take a linebacker, but Andrew Luck has been sacked so many times in his early career. He's been, I mean, 10 times more than Peyton Manning seemed to be sacked when he was with the Colts. I mean, this is that's what's causing the injuries, and that's what's derailing seasons. So you have to look at the offensive line for this team, even though they need linebacker help. I mean, it seems like a lot of teams do, but if they can get the right offensive line with the right guys to protect their, you know, their superstar quarterback, then they could do bet. They have a better chance of winning that division, even though it's gotten stronger, as long as they can just sure up that line. At number 19, three out of the four experts have the Bills taking a defensive tackle. And now that Mario Williams is gone, they might need help on that line. And then just one of them has them taking a linebacker. So where do you see them going with that? Well, you said it. They definitely need help on the line. And um, one of them has them taking Sheldon Rankin, too. I, I definitely don't think would fall down to 19. Obviously, if he does, you got to take him because he's extremely talented. But Jerron Reed out of Alabama, anytime you pick an Alabama player from the Crimson Tide, it's obviously going to go well for you. And I think he could be the guy for the uh, Buffalo Bills. But now moving to Southern New York, New Jersey specifically, the New York Jets are picking at 20. And it seems every single year they pick a defensive player in the first round to load up their defense. And all of a sudden, they now have one of the best front sevens in the NFL. And once again, the experts have the Jets taking more defensive players. Emmanuel Ogba, a defensive end out of Oklahoma State. Leonard Floyd, outside linebacker from Georgia. Noah Spence, defensive end from Eastern Kentucky. And Darren Lee, the outside linebacker from Ohio State, if he slips back that far. But Justin, I think that the Jets, they recently departed with Damon Harrison, who the Giants took from them, who was one of their best interior presences on their defensive line. So I feel like they definitely do need to patch up that hole if they want to contend with the Patriots in the AFC East. But obviously the reoccurring trend is defense for the Jets in the first round. Do they stick to this trend, or do they maybe draft a wide receiver or something else like that? I think they're going to stick to it because a lot of teams need linebackers, and if Leonard Floyd somehow drops down that far, or even Darren Lee drops down that far, you got to snatch him up because they need linebackers. Most of the teams do, and if they can get a good one, along with that defensive line, even though Damon Harrison's not there, if they can sure up the linebacker position, the defense is much more complete. And so with a complete defense and Brandon Marshall on the offensive side, and maybe they resign Ryan Fitzpatrick, they can compete in that division, but it's looking more and more like the Patriots are still going to take it. That was our preview of picks 11 through 20 in the NFL draft, which is April 28th next month. On our next show, we'll preview the final 10 picks of the NFL draft, picks 21 through 31, as the Patriots do not have a first-round pick this year. But up next, we're going to get back into our baseball talk. Spring training is going on, and first off, Bryce Harper is back in the news, this time for criticizing the game of baseball. You probably know him as the best player in the major leagues, and that is Bryce Harper. And Bryce Harper kind of embodies the younger generation of MLB players as this week. You may have heard him call the game of baseball quote-unquote tired, basically saying that bat flips and any kind of celebrating after you have a big play should not be frowned upon like it is. He thinks that fist pumps, bat flips, and any kind of spontaneous emotion during a game is okay, and he's taking a lot of heat for this with some of the older MLB players such as Goose Gossage who said that Bryce Harper has no respect for the game and in the sense that baseball is evolving much more slowly than the NBA and the NFL, he kind of is disrespecting the game because the MLB, one of the things that they pride on is that they are the great American pastime and that they do take a while to move on from certain things. Like it took even a while for them to implement instant replay and you see this all the time in the NBA and the NFL where the younger generation does have a big say on what goes on in those sports and what's okay as far as the celebration goes, such as Cam Newton doing the dab every time he gets into the end zone. That's okay. 
And even in the NBA, you see this with Stephen Curry. He's the best shooter in the league, and every time he makes a clutch three-pointer, he's dancing all over the court whether or not he's at home, and he stares down the other bench, and nobody bats an eye, but... Being that this is the MLB and it is one of the more old-fashioned sports, you do have a lot of legends who speak out against young guys like this, like Bryce Harper, who try and bring these new trends into baseball and say that they're disrespecting the game. But at the same time, you can completely turn the tables on this incident and look at it from a different perspective and call Bryce Harper a pioneer for a new generation of baseball. Do you think that the game of baseball is okay just as it is? Do you like the fact that it's that old-fashioned, great American pastime type of feel? Or do you think it should be okay for players to do bat flips and not be quote-unquote tired and show spontaneous emotion throughout these games? Well, at first when I read it, I thought, oh, Bryce Harper just came out with another statement that I don't really agree with. But after reading it and really thinking about it, it's true. Because last year when Jose Bautista had that memorable bat flip and people criticized him for it, but guess what? People know that bat flip. People remember that people will know what I'm talking about when I say Jose Bautista's bat flip. And that just brings attention to the game. So it's getting tired and it's losing, it's losing steam because... People aren't paying attention to people just hitting a home run. They want to see what they do after. And I think it's totally fair because he put it right when he said, you know, if I hit a home run, I'm going to flip my bat. But if you strike me out the next time and you pump your fist, I'm not going to say anything. And it's true. You should be able to showboat. If you do good, You not to an extent where you run in the guy's face, but you do a subtle bat flip or a fist pump like that, that should completely be allowed. I mean, when Steph Curry hits a fadeaway jumper and looks away, before the shot even goes in, no one bats an eye. It's just, oh, that's impressive. But in baseball, if someone hits a home run, and tosses the bat the wrong way, then there's a, you know, a brawl on the field or, or the media takes it out of proportion and nothing really was a problem. So it seems like if the MLB can just come to reality and realize that the younger players are going to take over this game in the next six years and things are going to change no matter, no matter who's in the league or what the commissioner says or what other teams think, it's going to change. And it's going to change for the young people and it's going to evolve around what they want. And so if they want to celebrate and taunt the other team to a certain extent, I think it's fine. Well, yeah, you said it best. I mean, it's okay, but only to a certain extent. You don't want to see guys hitting walk-off home runs and all of a sudden walking up to the opposing pitcher and rubbing their hands in their face. And there have actually been a lot of the younger players in the league that backed Bryce Harper on this statement. Corey Seager, the young rookie of the LA Dodgers, who I think said it very well. He said, honestly, I don't show very much emotion, but I don't have a problem with it either way. You want to respect the game. But the game is evolving. And he's right. The game is evolving. Um, there's no way you can stop it from evolving. These younger players, this whole new generation, they are taking over the game. You see already guys like Mike Trout and Bryce Harper are dethroning our past generation of great hitters and bringing their own type of flair to this game. But if you listen to the rest of Corey Seager's quote, he really puts it very well. He says that when you're up by 10 runs, you don't need to keep abusing it. But if it's a big game in a big moment when excitement and adrenaline are going, then yes, that's when it's okay. And you even see that in other sports, like in the NBA or in the NFL. If you just scored a game-winning touchdown or a, a game-tying three-pointer, then of course, at that point, showboating and a bat flip or whatever it may be is okay. And I'm going to keep referring back to Corey Seager because really, he was on the ball. He said it's exciting for the fans. It brings excitement and energy to the crowd, and from that standpoint, it's a positive. You want the fans to be excited, and that's why we play. So in that sense, it's good that the game's evolving because it attracts a new crowd, a younger crowd of fans, but it's also uh, a, a negative in that it's moving away from the traditional way that you play baseball and the traditional way that guys celebrate after having a big play. Even the rising star third baseman, Chris Bryant from the Chicago Cubs, added that it's okay in certain situations. Certain guys do it. I don't. It helps certain guys play. I think that's part of the appeal of the game. You never know what to expect. Certain guys are going to celebrate. Certain guys aren't. I've never been that type of guy. And he said, 
obviously you play in a big playoff game like Batista did last year, it's a really cool moment. And I don't think that any pitcher is going to get upset if you do it in that type of a situation. So getting a sense uh, for the mentality that these younger players have is a good insight into what the game is evolving into and both the positives and negatives of what it's evolving into. Archie Bradley also, the young pitcher for the Arizona Diamondbacks, uh, also cited the Jose Batista situation saying that in the Batista situation, I thought if there was ever a time to flip a bet, it was then. That game was insane. You look at how Toronto reacted, and people will remember that for the rest of their lives. And when you put it that way, something that people are going to remember for the rest of their lives, that's obviously a good thing about this game. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that in the coming years. It's a matter of this generation being new to the sport and the younger players like more excitement than I guess the older players did. And that's just how it works. I mean, basketball wasn't the way it is now. When you, you know, posterize a guy and you just look at him and you stare him in the eyes, it wasn't like that before. And it's everything changes. So it's not that they don't have respect for the game. I mean, Bryce Harper wouldn't be playing. Bryce Harper wouldn't train since he was a young kid to play baseball if he didn't have respect for it. He just thinks there should be more excitement in it to get people to watch, to get people to pay attention. And it should be okay to, you know, express your feelings when you do well or when you don't do well. I just... Even Bryce Harper knows how far it should really be able to go, and so do all the other players. And so when you hear players like Corey Seager and Chris Bryant talk about how they agree with it, well, they're the future of baseball. So no matter what these older players think, you're going to see it. I mean, you're going to see it by all these guys, Archie Bradley even. When they're playing and all the older players are gone, like a David Wright, like a Joey Votto, like you said, once those players are gone, you know, the peaceful guys that don't really feel a need to showboat after they hit a home run or catch a nice ball or whatever it is that they do, then you have the younger players coming in and they're going to play the game how they want. So really, nobody can stop the change. And when you have new uh, rookie players like this breaking into the sport, it's also a matter of a new generation of fans watching the sport. And that's what attracts fans now. I mean, if you're the MLB Players Association or even the commissioner's office, you have to realize that this is what the next generation of fans wants. You have to realize that people like this. People like the bat flips. That bat flip that Jose Batista did in the playoffs was glorified on Twitter for probably two weeks after it happened. And like you said, people still remember it. And it's almost a competition now as to who can have the best bat flip. And that's what a lot of the younger fans uh, really like. People like Bryce Harper because he sometimes is confident like that. People like Jose Batista because he sometimes does have those bat flips. And I feel like the older generation of players needs to realize that. Not only is there a younger generation of players coming in, but there's a younger generation of fans, and this is exactly what they like to see. Even Jock Peterson attested to the other sports, saying that you look at football, you look at basketball, and there's a lot more celebrating. He says when someone does something well, they do celebrate. And so, Justin, when the other players on the field are realizing it too, and it's not just us, it raises a good question. Why do you think that they draw a line in the sand for the MLB and saying that this is not okay, where in the NBA and the NFL, nobody really cares how or when or why you celebrate. I think for football, you go through four years of college football that a lot of people watch, so you know you're on the big stage. And then after the big stage, you go to the NFL and you're on another big stage. Same thing for basketball. You're in college basketball, March Madness, then you go to the NBA. But college baseball, I mean, really, you celebrate, but nobody sees it anyway. So you feel like you're not getting the attention that you would normally if you were to celebrate in, uh, you know, in in college football or college basketball. And so maybe it's about the amount of people watching it, but I think one of the more famous quotes about celebrating applies to this situation is, if you don't like it, don't let me into the end zone. And so if you're a pitcher that doesn't like when a player flips his bat, then strike him out. And if not, then you you can't really say anything because he just owned you and that's it. If you strike him out and he's been celebrating, then you feel like, oh, you took the power over him. So it's kind of like a mind game that people play with each other, but it's fun for the fans to watch and see the celebrations afterwards. So really, I mean, 
the bottom line is if, if they don't like it, they're going to have to do something about it on the field and not talk off the field. And that's just one of the breaking stories this spring training. There's a lot going on this spring. And you look at the standings atop the Cactus League, the Arizona Diamondbacks are absolutely blistering the competition. They're first in just about every single offensive stat. They're first in the Cactus League with 13 wins and four losses. Right behind them, the LA Dodgers. Um, a lot of those NL West teams are up top there. Even the Rockies are top five in the Cactus League. Do you see this as a sign that a lot of these NL West teams are going to dominate the National League this year? Or is this just a coincidence that it is spring training? I think it's a little bit of both because the Diamondbacks are a good team, but they're not the best in the league, in my opinion. And I don't think you know them being on top of the standings right now really shows that, oh, I was wrong and they are the best team in the league. I mean, we saw them play and they look pretty good, but not everyone was playing. And some people were playing that normally wouldn't be playing during spring training. And a lot of the spring training stuff is where a lot of the stars don't always go out. And so... I mean, it, it's kind of, it's hard to, you know, measure how much this means, but the NL West is a good division. It might be the second best, if not the best division in baseball this year. So teams like the Dodgers are going to perform well. Teams like the Blue Jays are going to also be good this year, but to them, for them to be in the top two in the Grapefruit League, I, I mean, I don't know. It's kind of, it's hard to measure. Like I said, it's hard to measure how much this really means for the season. Even last year in the Grapefruit League, the Mets were first in every single offensive category, and then they come out in the regular season, and until July, they had by far the worst offense in all of baseball. So I don't read too much into it. Um, if anything, I would say that the teams up top do have better farm systems. You look at the Dodgers. They're voted as one of the best farm systems in the major leagues. That's why they've had such a good spring, and they've had such a great offensive production. But when you look at the bottom of the Cactus League, you see teams like the Royals, the Giants, and the Cubs. And obviously, quite obviously, those teams are not going to be at the bottom of the National League and the American League. So... I don't read too much. As a matter of fact, I don't read at all into the records uh, for spring training. I do read in maybe a little bit to what the players are doing. And speaking of what the players are doing, Yasio Puig had a really down season last year. Um, was injured all year, even when he was healthy. Wasn't playing well, but this spring he's back to his Yasio Puig ways. Nothing spectacular, but he's batting 6 for 21 with one home run. Do you think he's primed for a comeback season for the Dodgers? Well, I mean, I don't see why not. If he's healthy, he has speed, a good arm, great fielding. He has, he's energized all the time. So I feel like if he just goes out there and plays like you know we saw him play in his first year, then he could be back to the superstar that he was before. So there, there's no reason in my eyes that he shouldn't come back. But I mean, every player has an up and down year, so you kind of never know. Now, with everything that we just talked about, the biggest breaking story still is Adam LaRoche. Adam LaRoche has decided to call it a career after the controversy with his son not being allowed to come inside the clubhouse with him. And the reports coming out are that this is something that Adam LaRoche and his son have been doing for years. It's something that has always been okay. And then all of a sudden, players started to complain. Adam LaRoche doesn't like it, and he decides to retire. So, Justin, what's your take on this whole thing? Because there's a lot of people who think that this was just an excuse for Adam LaRoche to retire. Nobody, not even the other players in the clubhouse, know which players complained about Adam LaRoche's son. There's people who don't have a problem with his son being in the clubhouse. There's people who think that he shouldn't have been there anyway. And it's really just a whole awkward situation, Justin, that I would have never seen coming as the breaking story this spring. How do you feel about the whole thing? Well, this is a really tough story because I've changed my opinion on this about four or five times. Because at first, when the story broke, he said nobody had a problem with it. He was the 26th man, and all the players loved him, and there was no reason for this. But now, I'm when we read a story this morning saying how players did have a problem with it, and some players complained to the you know the coach and the vice president, and so they kind of took the fall for the players that were complaining, kind of you know trying not to tear that locker room apart. But the kids there maybe 120 games out of the season, and that's a lot of games, and. 
yeah, he he wasn't a problem, but I read a story the other day about why it would be a problem, and I, I totally understand it because somebody wrote saying how if you're in the clubhouse and you just won a big game or you just lost a big game, your attitude is going to be negative and your language might be negative or what you did the last night or the day before might be negative story that you can't tell with a 14-year-old kid around. So I see how it would be almost annoying to have him around all the time. And so I feel like 120 out of the you know 162 games is a little bit too much for him to be around. But if he was the 26th man and he didn't really bother anybody, it's kind of a tough call. But the vice president's taking a lot of heat for it, mostly because Adam LaRoche said his son was not welcome. His story was a little bit different. And now the players are taking sides. And especially with Adam LaRoche, as, as good of a player as he is, and he's kind of a leader on that team or was leader on that team, you don't really want to upset him or his kid, and I say it's not a problem. Well, the only way I could have seen this being a problem for the White Sox in the first place is if Adam LaRoche's son was being a punk and interfering with team exercises and team activities, meetings, and stuff like that. But from what I've read, he wasn't a bad kid. He would just kind of sit there and mind his own business. And to me, it's just kind of weird that this would just be a problem starting now when his son was allowed in the clubhouse in years past, and then all of a sudden, now it's a problem. So... It's kind of a mess there, um, especially when you consider that we don't know which players uh, spoke out against Adam LaRoche's son being in the clubhouse, and even the other players on the team, a lot of them don't know which players spoke out against it as it was anonymous. A lot of the players have come out and supported Adam LaRoche in this situation, including the team leader, Chris Sale, who's one of the best pitchers in the league, and anytime you have that conflict of interest in the locker room or the clubhouse in any sport, it can be really uh, detrimental to your team chemistry, and that's exactly what the White Sox can't afford to have headed into the season. Even a couple weeks ago, they were planning on protesting one of their Cactus League baseball games, and anytime you have a situation like that, it's not good. And for the White Sox, a team that made so many offseason moves that was expected to be a huge team, uh, something like that can really be so bad for your team chemistry, and they really need to get it under wraps before the season begins. Well, I think early on they'll be in trouble, and then once they figure out the problems within, then they'll improve and get the chemistry going again. But the problem is, if some players complained and most didn't, what's going to happen when they find out who those players were that complained and how they're going to be maybe segregated from the rest of the team and looked down upon and, and friendships you know, are kind of hurt. I don't want to say ruined, but people are offended that the other person would complain about a kid being in the clubhouse, a kid that loves baseball. So I think the chemistry for this team is going to definitely be all over the place. And they're lucky it's just spring training because once the season starts, hopefully it's all figured out. Because if your team's protesting playing a game, there's problems within that clubhouse. There's big, big problems. And realistically, until they have something else to focus on and something else to think about, this is going to be all the talk of the town in Chicago. It's going to be all the talk of the town in the clubhouse. And really, the only way to prevent that is by winning. And winning a spring training game obviously means close to nothing. But once you get to the regular season, the only way that this conflict really can be resolved, as I'm sure fragments of the story will be uh, revealed throughout the season, but the only way to really completely resolve it is by winning. And if you continue to win games, people are going to forget about the entire situation. And really, if you're the White Sox, you want the season to start as soon as possible because as soon as you start winning games and putting a long win streak together, I think the team chemistry for this team is going to be off the charts. The fact that they had to overcome this entire situation, everyone's going to forget about it. And I think that when it's all said and done and they finally do regain their composure, whenever that might be, I feel like the White Sox are going to be a team that's very hard to take down basically because they had to build their team from the ground up starting this spring training. And 
once they do build it from the ground up and they finally get to a point where they're winning games consistently, I feel like their bond in the clubhouse is going to be almost unbreakable. And as little as that might sound, that's basically what carried the Kansas City Royals to two straight World Series appearances. But that's all your breaking stories in spring training this week. Up next, we're going to talk about Carmelo Anthony. Why is his name back in the news right here on Just Steve and Sports? The highest scoring game ever here at the Garden. 62 points for Carmelo Anthony. Capacity crowd on their feet. And Arvich to Melo. Or is he wrong tonight? 23 of 35 from the field. Throwing 13 rebounds. And he now owns the franchise record for points in a game, passing Bernard King. A magical night here at the Garden, and an historic one as the fans on their feet. January 24th, 2014, you have to go back that far when Carmelo Anthony set the Knicks franchise record for 62 points in a game against the Charlotte Bobcats. That was his shining moment in a Knicks uniform where he started his career five years ago, left Denver to come to the city that he loves so much, New York. And it's been a very disappointing five years for Carmelo Anthony in New York. He's had a lot of individual success, but with the Knicks, he's only reached the playoffs three times, only advanced out of the first round once. And he's recently gone public with what he has to play with in New York, basically saying that he has not been given a fair chance since he's been on the Knicks. He hasn't been given a supporting cast that is capable of getting to the NBA Finals, and he wants that opportunity. He has told Phil Jackson that he wants a seat at the end of the table when luring free agents to come to New York this offseason. He wants to win a championship. And Carmelo Anthony's right. He realizes that the East is weak right now and that championship window is closing and the Knicks need to make a move as soon as possible, especially with as many superstar free agents as there are this year. And he has also said that if he's not satisfied within the next year, he will exercise his no trade clause. He will seek a trade. And that's something that obviously the Knicks do not want as he's been so loyal to them, and he's been their centerpiece for the past five years. But Justin, it seems like since he's been playing for the Knicks, he's always been whining about what he has to play with and making excuses for why the Knicks are losing games and what do they need to do to keep this guy satisfied? Well, the Knicks might be in big trouble because the all-knowing Phil Jackson says there's no reason to upgrade the point guard position for the Knicks, but I feel like that's kind of a joke because their point guard position is the reason that they're not competing in the East right now. They're missing somebody who can run the team that is not Carmelo Anthony. Porzingis is young, but if you have a big man, a middle guy, and a small guy, that's really what every team strives to be like is they have a point guard, they have a small forward or a power forward and a center or a shooting guard and then a power forward and a center or whatever. You have to have three different positions that are good. It's a big three. I mean, most teams lately that have won a championship have had a big three or even a big four, big five in Golden State. But if the Knicks don't upgrade at the point guard position or they don't upgrade anywhere during free agency, there's going to be a gigantic problem. And if I was Carmelo, I would get out of there at that point. But you have to give him one more year that you know, Kevin Durant's going to be a free agent. Maybe they don't take a move on that. Russell Westbrook's going to be a free agent. You have to look there. But if Phil Jackson doesn't want to make a move on a point guard, then what's going to happen to the Knicks? Because they have nobody else on that team that can perform besides Carmelo Anthony and Christos Porzingis. So, I mean, two guys isn't going to win you a championship, and they won't even get to the, to the playoffs, as you've seen this year. So if Phil Jackson and the Knicks ownership don't make a move, I would waive my no-trade clause too. And one of the definitely odd things that Phil Jackson has come out and said throughout this uproar is that he may come out and coach 41 games for the Knicks next season, all of the home games, while Kurt Rambis coaches all the away games. And this is something that I'm not sure we've ever seen in the NBA where you have the primary head coach 
coaching the away games only. And quite frankly, if it was anybody else saying this other than Phil Jackson, the Zen master, I think that a lot of people would have a problem with it. So, Justin, what's your take on that entire awkward scenario? Ever since Phil Jackson's come to New York, I've had the feeling that he was only, you know, half committed to this team. I mean, he's made moves and he he's made a couple smart moves, but it just doesn't seem like he's the face of the franchise like he was with LA when he was obviously the coach. But I don't want to see any more halves, and I don't want to see him coaching half the games of the season. I'm not interested in that. I'm, I'm interested in him hiring a coach that can do good things for the Knicks, like Tom Thibodeau or you know, even Luke Walton, even though he lacks experience. He did coach a good team, so he knows how to run one. I mean, there's guys out there that can coach. I don't want to see him coaching half a team half the time. I'm just, like, as a Knicks fan, I actually just want to see progression and an actual coach in there for the long term and Carmelo wants to see the same thing he doesn't want to see Phil Jackson coaching half of his games he wants a consistent coach that runs the same plays home and away so they can win games home and away now what does this tell you about Phil Jackson's confidence in Kurt Rambis because he has repeatedly said that Kurt Rambis is their guy and they expect him to be back next season but now they're telling him that we only want you for half the games and even Carmelo Anthony has said that he wouldn't be okay with Phil Jackson coaching half the games well it definitely says a lot because Kurt Rambis people like him but there's a problem with that because the Suns players like Earl Watson as the coach in Phoenix, and I just heard the story the other day, is they want to keep Earl Watson because they really like him. You could hate your coach. You can every All high school players come up and say, oh, my coach was so hard on me, but they learn the respect from them later in life. So my point is, if for a guy like Earl Watson even, yeah, you may like him as a coach and as a player, but how many more games have they won? Two or three? I mean, Stephen and I have watched a lot of games with Kurt Rambis coaching, and you know it's been okay, but it hasn't been great. And you know, for Nick's perspective, it has to be great because, yeah, you don't have a great team, but you have a decent enough team to win some of these games that they're losing by 20 or 25 points. So he might not be the coach of the future, and I think Phil Jackson realizes that when he considers coaching half the games next year, all of which would be at home, but Kurt Rambis is Phil Jackson's guy. So this team's being influenced by Phil Jackson. So if Phil Jackson cannot be honest with himself and say maybe Kurt Rambis isn't the guy for the future, even though he's my guy, then he needs to say something now and then hire a coach with experience who can actually, you know, lead this team to the playoffs with an improved team over free agency. I mean, there's a lot of things that have to be done, but it just straight up shows that Phil Jackson doesn't trust his guy. Now, the Knicks, even with Carmelo Anthony, are third to last in the Eastern Conference, but contending for third in the Eastern Conference are, believe it or not, the Charlotte Hornets. Yes, the Charlotte Hornets, who used to be the Charlotte Bobcats that won seven games just four years ago, were contending for third this week, having won eight of their last 10 games as the Hornets, Celtics, Heat, and the Atlanta Hawks are all separated by a game and a half between third and sixth place in the Eastern Conference. And as those teams have failed to perform, the Hornets have proven to be a very opportunistic team, and this team has pretty much been an afterthought this entire past decade. So you start to wonder who is even on the Charlotte Hornets, and you look down the roster and you see a lot of inexperienced players who do have a lot of potential, like Kemba Walker and Jeremy Lamb out of UConn, Nicholas Batum, Cody Zeller, who they drafted out of North Carolina, Michael Kidd-Gilchrist, Frank Kaminsky, who they drafted last year out of Wisconsin, and really the most experienced name on their team is Jeremy Lin. And when you have a team of so many players with young potential that start to click, it seems like it was only a matter of time before the Charlotte Hornets did start to perform well. But Justin, this team won seven games just four years ago. What are they doing differently now that has them contending for a top seed in the Eastern Conference? Well, I really think it's just team chemistry at this point because, yeah, they have talent, but they, they don't have as much talent as 
a team like the the Heat or even the Celtics. So if a team's just working together with pretty good guys, you could finish fourth in the East, especially since it's just a little bit weaker than the West. You have a chance to compete if you just work together with good enough players like Kaminsky, Kemba Walker, Jeremy Lin. Everyone's working together, and they might not have the most talent in the NBA, but they have enough chemistry and enough talent the perfect balance to make it to the playoffs, maybe not pass a lot of the other teams ahead of them in the standings or even in the playoffs, but they're making progress and they can pick up one more, you know, great player to be on that team. Then you might see them atop or maybe top three in the East. Now, realistically, nobody saw the Hornets playing this good and contending for this high of a seed this late into the season, at least. So Justin, um, are they really going to have a say in who wins the Eastern Conference Finals and even possibly the NBA Finals? I mean, I don't think so. I think they'll give the first team that they play a tough time, but I don't know if they really have a say in the Eastern Conference Finals and deciding who goes, but they are a good team and they are making progress, but I I don't can't I haven't seen enough to say they're going to beat the Cavaliers or the Raptors who are on a hot streak and the Hawks who are on a hot streak. And so it's kind of tough to measure them up against those teams, but you definitely see improvement from years past. And once again, very quietly, the Toronto Raptors are playing extremely well right now, 48-21 and 21 as of Monday morning, and they're now one game behind the Cleveland Cavaliers for the number one seed in the Eastern Conference, and they haven't been necessarily outperforming the Cavs, but definitely keeping pace with them, and the Cavs seem to be having some chemistry issues, and it seems different issues every single day, so... When it's all said and done, Justin, do you think that the Toronto Raptors will be the number one team in the Eastern Conference at the end of the season? Well, at first, when when in the first or second episode, when we when we did our NBA power rankings, I thought there was no chance that the Raptors could pass the Cavs. But if the Cavs can just slip up one time, and I'm sure they play each other one more time in the rest of the season, uh, I would assume. But if the Cavs slip up just one time, the Raptors are going to be there to pick it up because I've listened to a lot of games and I've seen a lot of games from the Raptors and DeMar DeRozan is really a superstar. Kyle Lowry's a superstar. Valanciunas in the paint is great. So if they can just keep up what they're doing right now, they're going to pass the Cavs and maybe the Cavs drop a game to not such a great team. They let their guard down. They've done that before. They're beating the Hornets and then got blown out in the second half and to lose to them. So you never really know who they're going to lose to on a day-to-day basis. They are great, but if the Raptors get a chance, they're going to pass them. Now, what about the Boston Celtics? Because you and I, a couple weeks ago, mentioned them as a team that might be able to contend for that one seed as well, and they've been one of those Eastern Conference pinballs that's kind of been bouncing around third through sixth place, and they now find themselves in fifth. They've had a really bad month of March. Ironically enough, the luck of the Irish has not been in their favor, so Justin, they definitely don't lack superstardom with guys like Isaiah Thomas, but what has gone wrong for the Boston Celtics? Well, they've gone away from their fundamentals. I mean, they used to be a defensive team that was focused on defense, but could also put up a good amount of points. You know, you never know they could go for 120, 125 a night, depending on who they were playing, of course. But they kind of drift away from that defense and kind of lean more on their offense. And so I think they're going to see that when they look at the tape and they'll realize what they need to do to fix it. But they won't be out of the playoffs, but they'd be lucky to stay in the spot that they are. And if they can go back to what they did before, they could move up to that maybe four seed. But the way the Hawks and the Raptors are playing right now, there's no way they get any higher than that. Now let's talk about that Eastern Conference bubble because it's been a really fierce battle for that final playoff spot in the East. Right now you have the Bulls and Pistons both tied for eighth place at 35 and 33 and 36 and 34. And in seventh, you have the Pacers who now are only half a game above the Bulls and Pistons for that eighth seed. The teams I mentioned earlier are taking up third through sixth. The Hawks, Heat, Celtics, and Hornets seem to be out of the woods for now at least. The only other team in the picture are the Washington Wizards, who are currently a game and a half behind the Bulls and Pistons for that eighth seed. So something's got to give here, Justin. You have the Bulls, Pistons, and Wizards. It looks right now at least like one of those teams is going to make it. Two of them won't. And the Pacers are also slipping back very slowly but surely. So who's going to get those two spots, and who's going to fall out of the playoffs? Well, a team that I... 
have liked all season long, even though they haven't performed too well, is the Washington Wizards. And with the acquisition of Markeith Morris and the shooters that they have on that team, and John Walls really started clicking, I think they could take it because the Pistons, I'm not really sure that they're a good enough team, you know, right now to make the playoffs. And the Bulls also, they, they're injured, they're beat up, with Joakim no out. But the Wizards, I've seen they're healthy. And Bradley Beal's playing again. John Wall's playing well. Marcin Gortat and John Wall seem to have this chemistry that works just so well for them, and they've beaten teams pretty good. If they can keep winning like they have been, even though they're 5-5 five and five in their last 10, they really have started to put it together with Marquis Morris on that team, and they're starting to move towards the playoff push. So I think they're better than the Pistons. I think they're better than the Bulls right now with the health issues. So that'd probably be my pick to take the eighth seed. Now the Dallas Mavericks are definitely one of the most experienced teams in the NBA, yet they find themselves in eighth place, tied for seventh in the Western Conference at 35-35 and 35 with the Houston Rockets. 27 and a half games behind the Warriors for the number one seed. And you have the Utah Jazz playing very well right now, breathing down their neck. And you look down the roster for the Mavericks, you have Dirk Nowitzki, who's won an NBA Finals before, Darren Williams, Chandler Parsons, David Lee, Raymond Felton, a lot of really old players that have had a lot of time in the NBA and have really polished themselves as complete players. But they're definitely not playing like the team that people thought they would be. Realistically, they should probably be a fourth or fifth seed right now. Well, I think the age is getting to them. They don't have any young, fast guys that you can name on that team. And I think when you have a team like the Jazz, who are a little bit younger, and I don't really love the Jazz, but I think they're good enough to take that eight seed away from the Mavericks because of the way they've been playing over the last 10 games, they're 3-7. and seven. So if the Jazz can just keep playing like they have been, the Mavericks will fall off because their age and the experience on that team is great. But experience doesn't beat the Golden State Warriors, and experience doesn't beat the Spurs because they have more... They have more talent, just blatant more talent than the Mavericks do have. So it's it's tough for them. Right now, everyone's talking about how the Golden State Warriors are 62-7. and They've won 50 straight games at home. They're chasing the Chicago Bulls for that best record of all time. And being lost in all of these records that they're breaking is the fact that the playoffs are just a few weeks away, Justin. And I feel like even with their loss to the Spurs the other night, they're playing at such a high level compared to the rest of the league that I feel like there's a legitimate chance they can dominate the playoffs next month. But... Dominate is a very strong word. Do you think that there's any chance that they can bulldoze through every single team they face, winning 16 games in a row, sweeping every single team en route to their second NBA Finals in a row? If you look at the teams, like you said, if you look at the teams the Warriors might play in the Rockets, the Mavericks, or the Jazz, we could go one by one. The Jazz, they they don't have enough pace to keep up with the Warriors, and they have decent shooters but not good enough to put up 120 points. The Mavericks, who can put up a decent amount of points sometimes, are again, are not fast enough to stick with the Warriors, and... Even though they have experience, the Warriors don't need experience to win games. They have enough pure shooting talent. And let's just say they play the Rockets. It'll be ugly because they might drop 150 on that team with the defense that they play. Although the Rockets have good shooters and enough talent to almost compete with the Warriors on the offensive side of the ball, their defense is not even present for most of their games, giving up 122 points to the Clippers the other night. So they're going to win almost all these games. If they lose one I wouldn't be too surprised, but I don't think they'll lose two against any of those three teams in the first round. Yeah, as great as this Golden State team is, I don't think there's any chance we'll ever see a team win 16 games in a row in the playoffs. The competition level is just way too high, but anyway, that's going to do it today on Just Steven Sports. Thanks for tuning in. We're excited to have you on board. Follow us on Twitter at Just Steve Sports. Follow us on SoundCloud. Listen to us on iTunes. Find us anywhere, really. We're all over the internet. For Justin Lopiccolo, I'm Steven Cusimano. Thanks for tuning in.